Now, for those of you who might be uh, joining us for the first time, uh, like I said, a couple weeks ago, we started this series, and really this series is about helping lead us to God's demonstration of his greatest display of love. And I didn't mention this last week, but I want to take a look at it again, and it's a, it's a pretty lengthy sentence. It's not very quip, but probably easier ways to say this, but I I wanted to create a great definition, a, a very concise definition of what is, as, as I could, a definition. What does it mean to understand God's greatest display of love? And it's basically this. I have it on the screen here. You can look. It says, God's greatest display of love is this. God allowing his one and only son to die an atoning death for our sins. An atoning death means that we should have paid some price, but God did something on our behalf. Atoned. Okay. And this happened, what, on the cross so that you and I could be reconciled to God and experience all the benefits and promises, this is why it's called good news, by the way, of being part of God's kingdom by responding to allegiance to Jesus as king. Everyone is smiling. Did I do something? Did I spell something? No? There's a mouse going around? Oh, okay. All right. Um... (laughs) <laughs> so this is God's greatest display of love, okay? And I think it's important for us to start. I mean, today we had communion, and we sang all these new songs about, I mean, I love this new song that Josh, uh, I, I didn't know what it was, and yesterday I looked it up, and I, and I said, oh my goodness, this is what we need to know. This is what we need to know. And this is what we need to be sure of. And so... In week one, what we did is we looked at the story of Jesus and his entry into Jerusalem, right? And we were introduced to this Messiah who was also king. And, and he's the Messiah king who invites us to follow him by giving our allegiance to him. And allegiance to Jesus as king means this, just to recap, so if you missed it. One, obeying the things we know he's already asked of us. Giving our lives to Jesus as king is not trying to figure out like all the 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 the, the, the ifs and oh, I'm not sure whether I should do this. Like there are literally things that you know that God has asked you to do, and it's actually living that out. First of them is are pretty easy. Some of you should know this, even if you're not a church person. We know the Ten Commandments: don't lie, don't steal, don't right. And so there are many things in our life that we know that God, what we know God has asked us to do. And if we want to be people who live as Jesus is King, we have to actually obey the things that Jesus, that we already know He's asked us to do. Loving and building relationships with other believers. This is really, really important because if you don't get this then you haven't submitted to Jesus as king who died for the church. He died for the church. And Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. And then last, we learned that we should give God our attention in this economy of attention that we live in now where our phones are, are, are begging our attention the, and, and the, the advertisers are begging our attention If anything more that we need to know is that God desires your attention. So the question is, are you giving it to him? 
And it's not to make you feel bad if you don't, but just to recognize and just go like, you know what? This life pulls so much. And I don't want to give media a bad rap, but there's other things in life that demand our attention. Our children, don't they? Our children, they demand our attention. Our school, right? School demands our attention. Our work demands our attention. Changes in our life demand our attention. And so we need to be proactive in giving God our attention. And then last week we spent some time digging down to ask this question. What does it mean to live as someone who is increasingly learning to submit all of life to Jesus as Savior and King? And through the story of Jesus being anointed by Mary, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, we learned that Jesus wanted his disciples to, to do these two things. What? To one, have a redefined view of stewardship. That Jesus calls the shots on what does it mean to be a steward of your resources. The disciples thought she was being wasteful, but Jesus thought she was being beautiful. Well, that's good. I didn't even write that down. That's a, I should put that down. That's a good point. The disciples thought she was being wasteful and God saw it as beautiful. And so we, we allow God, Jesus, the King, to redefine that stewardship. And then we also, he also asks us to have a reoriented view of what true worship looks like. And I don't want to preach all that all over again. But this is what we looked at over the last couple of weeks, that we've been challenged to understand what it means to view Jesus as King. Now today, <clears throat> as we continue this journey towards the cross, one of the things I want to look at is, yes, Jesus is king, but Jesus also holds a very special kind of kingly position that the writer of Hebrews would call priest and king. And so if there was a title of today's message that would summarize the main point of the message, it would literally be this, Jesus is our priest and king. Jesus is our priest and king. And so, hopefully you've had enough time to find John chapter 13. We're going to dive into scripture today. But before we do, would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I pray that this time that we've dedicated to looking at your word would be time Will you touch our hearts? You who loved us, as we will read to the very end, leads us towards a life that is good, that is righteous and pleasing. But everything in our life, the world around us, even our own desires sometimes want to cloud those intentions you have for us. And so in this moment, Heavenly Father, I pray that by your word and by the corporate intention of this local fellowship to not only worship you, but to listen to you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work inside our hearts that only you could do. 
And in the process, as we look at this, Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart, God, be pleasing to you, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. In name I pray. Amen. John chapter 13, verse 1. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when you read the Bible scholar stuff. This, this is an interesting phrase, like he loved them to the end. Uh, there are a lot of different views on like what that means. And I, I mean, we could talk about it if you really want to get geeky on it. But what's most important to understand is that in the timeline of the gospel story that is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, sin, but yet promise, and then the promised one coming in this timeline of the gospel story, What we need to know the most is that Jesus has officially ended his ministry to those who were uh, not his own. If you remember, he was ministering, his disciples are with him, but mostly he was going around and he was talking about the kingdom of heaven and healing people, people who were not yet his followers, but yet he was making followers. And we come to the part of Jesus' ministry where from here on out, the people that Jesus talks to, at least before he goes up to Pilate, These are his disciples. These are his people. And this is important to point out as we look at what we find Jesus doing next. That Jesus loves his disciples. And he knows that these are some of his final moments with them. And I think this is really important to remember that Jesus loves his disciples And that he is fully aware that the end is near. Because if you forget this, you can interpret what Jesus teaches them through an imperfect perspective. And when you misunderstand what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, you can misinterpret what Jesus would want to actually teach you. So this is why it's important. So before we even go a single verse further, I just want to ask you this question. Do you know... Do you know that Jesus loves you? I know that it's a, it's a kid's song. Jesus loves me. This I know. That's how it goes. But do you know? Like, do you know that Jesus loves you? Before we go any further, I, I, I need you to know this. Jesus loves you. And there's nothing you can do that will cause him to love you more. And there's definitely nothing you have done that will cause him to love you any less. Jesus loves you. I, I need you to know that this morning. So, as we step into 
what will be one of Jesus' longest dissertations to his disciples will end up being five chapters of Jesus teaching a room filled with people who were only his disciples. Before we get there, you do need to know that Jesus has an immense amount of love for his disciples. And you'll see why as we read verse 2. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. <laughs> Jesus knew who he was, where he came from, and who would he return to. And John makes a point to mention this so we're not confused by what Jesus does next. Verse 4 says this, So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Now, I I don't know what you guys did in college, um, but when I was in college, I used to work at a coffee shop. And I used to put on one of these things. Uh, It was green. And uh, I don't know if anyone knows what I'm talking about, but I used to wear this thing all day. All day, I used to wear it. All day, I'd, I'd work the morning shift, woke up at 5.30, and, uh, man, I don't know how to tie this anymore. Oh, we're not going to worry about it. But I used to get up, and this would be the bane of my existence. And, and there was nothing better than this feeling. And, and it's just a little cloth. But it felt like a weight lifted off my shoulder, and I was like, yes! Because here's the thing. When I took this off, when I took this off, I got to... Be done serving other people. And now, I could do whatever I want. I could no longer be worried about serving other people, and I could just be worried about serving moi. Right? And Jesus described himself, uh, as Jesus was described, taking off his outer clothing and tying a towel around his waist. I know this, this doesn't maybe resonate with us in this modern day context, but what you had to understand is that what Jesus was doing here is what Paul would describe in Philippians 2 as Jesus was assuming a form of a servant, himself becoming obedient to the point, even death to on the cross. And so here we have a picture of Jesus' servanthood. He, he's taking a, this, this, this vision and creating a word picture, so to say, for his disciples about who He is. And then in verse 5, it says this. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. Like, you need to think about that. And he came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? So here... John tells us that Jesus is going around and washing the disciples' feet, right? Well, mostly because no one bothered to offer to wash each other's feet, and so their feet were dirty. But in Luke's gospel uh, of this account, I think it's really important for us to notice that, uh, you know, John doesn't mention it here because he's, he's, they all have different uh, 
points of what they're trying to tell the story, but they all, the, all these stories match. And when we read Luke chapter 22, you find that right before Jesus does this, he finds his disciples arguing <laughs> about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And so this actually helps you understand a little bit better, like, why would Jesus just all of a sudden get up and wash his disciples' feet? And so when Jesus gets to Peter, John portrays Peter, in in, in my opinion, he kind of gives, John has some beef with Peter. I mean, I don't really mean beef, but it just, it seems like, you know, He's saying, oh, Jesus is going around washing disciples' feet. And then he gets to John, and John is like, eh, are you going to wash my feet, Jesus? Right? <laughs> that's how, that's how, and if you, if you, like, where are you getting this from? I mean, if, if you don't think they're entertaining parts of Scripture, uh, then you haven't really read much Scripture or really taken time to stop and think about what you're reading about. Poor Peter, he always gets a bad rap, especially from John. In fact, uh, if you look in John 20, 24, you'll, you'll see that John says this. He doesn't mention his own name, but he, but he kind of alludes to it earlier in that chapter. And he says this. He, says, he basically says, yeah, I beat, John, I beat Peter in a foot race. I'm faster than him. I'm faster than him. Not only am I the disciple that Jesus loves, but I'm faster than Peter. Okay? And so here you go. You have, you know, putting Peter in this bad light. But remember, Jesus loves Peter, even though Peter says some really stupid stuff sometimes. And this is what a loving Jesus says to him in verse 7. Jesus answers him, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. I don't know about you, growing up I always seemed to be like the youngest person in all my friend circles. And either that or I always seemed to be hanging around adults too and I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase. Have you ever heard this phrase? I'm saying, ever heard anyone say this phrase to you? Um, when you get older, you'll what? Understand. You'll see. Oh, you don't know anything right now. Oh, you think you. Oh, you think you're stressed out? Wait till you have kids, right? <laughs> right? Like, like all these type of things. And and I, and I remember I remember people saying this to me. And I remember my initial reaction to whenever I'd hear people say that to me, like, oh, you don't know. You don't, oh, if, if you only, and, and here's the funny thing, like, I hated it when people say it, and, and you can ask my son. I say it all the stinking time to him. I say, he, he, so he gets upset. And this is what we do. This is, this is how we, we pass on this curse to, to one another. And, and you understand it when you're older, right? Those of us who are older, like, we, it's almost clear as day. But for those who are younger, there are certain things you don't understand. It's clear as mud. But Jesus here sets the example and says, hey, look, you don't know what, you're, what I'm doing, but you will. And so Peter's first reaction to this is kind of like my first reaction to whatever my parents would say. You don't know. But someday you will. What does he say in verse 8? <laughs> Jesus, you will never, never wash my feet. You don't know what you're talking about. If you only knew. <laughs> and that's what we do. That's what we say to people who are lovingly trying to help us understand that we don't yet see, but we will yet see. We're tempted to go, 
No. No, I see, I see perfectly clearly what you're doing. The other guys might let you do this, but I know you are Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and you are not washing my feet. This must be a test because this must be a test. I remember, I remember the last test, Jesus. I sank in that water. I failed it. I'm not going to doubt again. I'm not going to doubt again. I'm not going to doubt. You are Jesus, the King. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fail this test. And uh, I'm sure Jesus was just shaking his head. Oh, Peter. Oh, Peter. You have to remember, though, that Jesus loves Peter, right? And so Jesus loves Peter, and he says this to him. In verse 8. Peter, if I don't wash you, Peter, if I don't wash you, you will have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, okay, well, Lord, if that's the truth, if, if I need to be washed by you so I can have a part of you, then you, go ahead, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. I know some people like to characterize Peter at this moment as still being thick-headed by thinking he could still tell Jesus what to do. But I think these are one of those moments where, where, Peter, where Peter was truly cut to the heart. In light of Jesus' loving words, Jesus speaking to what he knew would touch Peter's heart. I don't wash, you won't have a part with me. He knew that Peter wanted to part with Jesus. Peter all of a sudden came to his senses and he said, okay, God, well, if washing my feet is what ensures that I'm with you, well then wash all of me because I do not want to be without your presence. This is what Peter, I believe Peter, was saying. But Jesus reveals that even though Peter's heart was in the right place, he still didn't understand what he was doing. So Jesus says this in verse 10. Peter. One who has bathed doesn't need to wash anything. In fact, actually, early manuscripts, um, again, not to get into it, but earlier manuscripts of this passage doesn't actually include except your feet. And so it was a footnote, many scholars believe it was a footnote added by uh, people who were copying the scriptures to say, oh, is, this is what it means. But anyways, either way, it doesn't change the meaning. And he says, anyone who is bathed doesn't need to wash except his feet. He is completely clean. He who has been washed is completely clean. You are clean. <laughs> but not all of you are clean. Some Bible scholars would attribute what Jesus is saying here is Jesus is teaching about the need for people who have already been become followers of Jesus to embrace a life of repentance from sin 
There's this idea of washing our feet. We're already clean, but we do need to have Jesus wash our feet. It's this idea that like we're already, we're, believers are saved, but we need to have that moment where as 1 John 1, 9 instructs believers to do, to confess our sins because we believe and we know that Jesus Christ is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's actually, it's a very biblical thing. And it's one of the ways you can kind of look at this passage of scripture. But in contrast, there are other Bible scholars who also believe that this is really just simply, it's not actually that deep. It's actually just a simple foreshadow of what would be Jesus's ultimate display of selflessness by dying on the cross. And so there's some room for interpretation there. But what's really important to understand is that if there was any doubt about what Jesus was primarily trying to teach his disciples, Jesus would clarify it in what he says next. In verse 12, he says this, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master. And a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I love that. He doesn't say, if you know these things, you're blessed. Period. If you know these things, you're blessed if you believe them. Period. He says, if you know these things, blessed if you do them. We'll talk about that in just a second. Verse 18, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. Over the last couple of weeks, we learned that viewing Jesus as Messiah King has implications that cause us to view him as the one sent by God to establish a new kind of kingdom, a new kind of kingdom where he rules and reigns. Jesus is king means he is a king of a kingdom. And this understanding of who Jesus is allows us to reorient our lives to appropriately have Jesus as king. But the scripture also tells us that Jesus was not only a king, he was also a priest. Now, a little warning. I have just, we went a little long today because of all the stuff that we had. And great devotion, by the way. Loved it. But I'm going to take a few more minutes there. If that's okay. I, I, I want to explain this to you for a second. We're going to go a little bit into some theology here as we learn about Jesus, priest and king. And I, and I think it'll make sense as we come to the end. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6 is verse 7, we learn that the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus uh, actually fulfills Old Testament prophecy that says, 
Out of the line of Melchizedek will come the Messiah. And this Messiah will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who in the world is Melchizedek? Um, some of you, it's not, not, a, not a person we talk to about a lot, but here's what you need to know. We actually don't know a lot about Melchizedek. He was a very prominent figure in the, the timeline of Abraham's life. Abraham was the one who paid tithes to Melchizedek. He actually was the king of a place called Salem, but he was also a priest of God. So priest of God, king of Salem. He was a king, but he was also a priest. And here's what we know about kings. Kings reign, right? Kings rule. Kings give orders and people obey. But as a priest, one of the primary roles of a priest was to serve the people of God as one who offers sacrifices so that people who are far from God can be brought near to God. The primary role of the priest was to offer sacrifices so that the sin which caused a gap between God and his people could be reconciled. And this is what priests did. And so in this beautiful demonstration of humility by washing his disciples' feet, Jesus teaches something that I think all of us who have decided to follow Jesus need to be reminded of. That Jesus is not only our king, But he is a priest who has called us to live life as priests. And so, what does that even look like? Well, it looks like this. Jesus calls all believers to embrace service to other believers. Didn't we already say this? Um, Yeah, but... I think one of the things that we have to understand is that things that are repeated in Scripture are repeated because we should be listening to them. And we have a hard time kind of really getting it through our hearts. Because if you're honest with yourself, isn't there a natural inclination for you to want to take the apron and just... Like, this, this, that is good. That feels good. Like, that's what we want to do. We just want to take the apron. We just want to, we want to, we want to take off this burden of service to others. And we want to embrace service to ourselves. Like, we, there's something inside of each and every one of us that says, I'm going to get super practical here. It's so cold, Phil. I know you need help emptying that trailer. I know people need seats to sit in, but I am so warm in my bed right now. And sometimes it's not even about service to self. There's things in the world that keep us. We're fighting a battle. We're fighting a battle. Like who wins when the natural mundane things of your life keep you 
from the things that God actually wants from you. Hebrews will tell us later, do not forsake the assembly, as some already are doing. By the way, it's not just a post-COVID thing. It's something that happened even in the early church. People who are believers in Jesus were tempted to not gather. It's just a real thing. But God wants you to gather, wants you to serve one another. So here's the question. What is it that's causing you from serving other believers? Oh, no, I serve my family. Like, oh, no. Trust me, there are passages of scriptures that talk about how we serve our families. But you can't ignore the fact that we are called to serve other believers. What are you saying? I have to serve at church? It's like, what? Well, you don't have to serve here at church. Fine. You don't like that? Fine. How else are you serving believers? Like, how are you doing it? What's keeping you from doing that? What tempts you to believe that serving the people who are part of your local church is below you? What, maybe, maybe, maybe you wouldn't say that because that's really too negative. Perhaps the question you should ask yourself is this. What is it that wants you to prioritize your needs over the needs of others? Remember, the disciples were caught up <laughs> arguing about who was the greatest Before Jesus did this act of humility, they were concerned about themselves building their reputation, maybe proving that they had a kingdom worth bragging about. But Jesus, Jesus calls all believers to service to other believers. And we should be people that find ourselves concerned about, because we are concerned about a lot of things, church. We're concerned about the economy. We're concerned about our job. We're concerned about our health. We're concerned about relationships with other people. We're concerned about our finances. We're concerned about what's happening in the future. How, what, kind of, what kind of world our kids are going to live in. We're concerned about this. We're concerned about that. All the while, look, we only have... I always hate when, when coaches are like, let's go to 110%. And I'm like, I'm, excuse, excuse me, uh, coach... Um, that's a mathematical impossibility. Um, only, people only have 100%. And so, um, we, well, how about we just give it our all? <laughs> okay? And so listen, we only have 100% of our lives. And everything you give your attention to, you subtract the ability to give attention to the things that God wants you to. Like, that's just a fact. So how are you paying attention to this call of God? He says, you should do this. I could tell you all the different ways that you could serve. Then you'll think this is me recruiting you. So let me just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. Where do you see dirty feet? And what are you going to do about it? Like, where do you see dirty feet amongst the gathering of the believers? Let's get... Oh, you know, I serve at a food shelf. Like, that's good. But that's not the believers. We do both. Well, how, are you, how are you serving? Just, just putting that out there. Let the Holy Spirit do its work. And then the second, last but not least, the second thing Jesus communicates, and my wife's going to kill me because she's a nursery today. The second thing Jesus communicates to this washing of disciples' feet is something Peter talked about in one of his letters when he wrote this in 1 Peter 2.9. He says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. This is Peter, St. Peter, St. Peter who said, Jesus, wash all of me. St. Peter who, would, denying Jesus, would not use his voice to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. But when he saw the risen king, when he saw Jesus who died for sin rise from the dead, all of a sudden, this guy who was wishy-washy and, you know, he foot and mouth here at this one moment, he became this guy would become the rock. Peter the rock. And he would say this to the believers and encouraging them and saying, listen, this is who you are. Because of Jesus, you are a chosen race. You're a chosen people. There's implications here to this. but We won't get into it. Uh, but but you, you need to know that when God calls you into his own, you are no longer um, Swedish. You are no longer the identity that you carry on. You're no longer Korean-American. You're no longer whatever you are. I don't know. Like, uh, you're ne- you're, you, you are a new people, a people of God. But more than that, you are a royal priesthood. And as priests, we proclaim Jesus and join Jesus in the ministry of reconciling people back to God. In other words... Not only does Jesus call us to serve other believers, but he also sends all believers to live as messengers of God. It feels like I'm going to be beating a dead horse with this message. But remember, Jesus was a messenger of God who, Philippians 2 tells us, though he was God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He did not take some of the realities and obligations, not obligations, he did not take some of the realities and privileges that he had and use it as an excuse to actually accomplish God's will in the world. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Listen, regularly I talk about how you and I need to live sent in our circles of influences. And I have been so proud to hear of all the different stories that are arising in each and every one of your lives as you're getting this idea. Like, I am, God has called me to live sent. And I can't tell you how proud I am to hear about all the different relationships that God is building. And, I, and I'm excited to see what God's doing even in my own life, helping me connect with more people who are far from Christ so I could lead them to Jesus. And we call that personal evangelism. But one of the most ignored realities of how the gospel spread in the early church was that it was actually through the corporate work of evangelism among local churches that people came to follow Jesus. We read the book of Acts. How did, how did, how did Paul's work and Barnabas get blessed? It was because it was through a local church coming together, blessing, anointing, calling, and sending, and working together, supporting. If you take a look at how all that went, it was through local churches that the the gospel spread and disciples were being made. And in just three weeks, our culture will allow us to lean into an evangelistic opportunity that really comes once a year. Easter's coming, and I've been praying that God would open doors of opportunities for you and me to begin inviting people to come and see the goodness of God in our midst and hear the message of Jesus that he wants to wash them so that they can have a part with him.
When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he forever set an example of the kind of life followers of Jesus would increasingly learn to embrace. In fact, this radical commitment to serving others and making disciples would be what defined this movement of people who called themselves followers of the way, or as the non-Jewish people, uh, mostly the people in uh, Antioch who were Greek-speaking Gentiles, would call them the anointed little ones. Or you might know them as Christians, Christians. And I believe God is calling us to be the same. To be the kind of people who have really decided to follow Jesus and have it established in their heart. That I've decided to follow Jesus. And there's no turning back. No turning back. So, how are you going to serve? Jesus says, do this as I do. Then how are you going to live sent? He who receives the one I send, this is what Jesus said at the end, receives me. Do you want people to know Jesus? It's going to be through you. Let's be committed to being priests in the world that God has called us to. And let's see what God can do. Because our God, as we sang, he can do great things.